You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father in heaven, as we open your word this afternoon, we pray that you will be our teacher and our helper. We want to give you the glory and the honor. We know that without the Holy Spirit, we could understand nothing. But it was inspired by the Spirit of God, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will inspire our listening and learning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, and I'll try to announce this again um, later. I have a lot of people coming up wanting to talk and visit, and that's great. And I'm sorry sometimes the setting, because there's somebody that comes in right behind us, and we, so we have to clear the deck, and that's good. Um, it's a great seminar, too. But I did ask if they would find a room over in the administration building so that right after this meeting at, at 3.15, I have room 144, not 1844, but 144. 144 over in the administration building. And, uh, so, and we can be informal. You can ask me whatever you want. I may not have an answer for it, but I'll do the best I can. Uh, things that you've wanted to talk about. And sometimes those are the greatest informative uh, parts that you can do. So I don't know if you want to do that or if you're interested in it, but you can think about it. But it'll be right after this meeting in the ad building, um, uh, room 144. And you can bring your questions and thoughts and comments, and, uh, and we'll have a good time together for no longer than an hour, but up to an hour. You don't have to stay the whole time if you don't want to. It's just, um, we'll just have a question-answer time till we're, we're done, informal. All right, we want to go back to where we were uh, yesterday, and um, we're going to pick up right uh, in chapter 4. But I'm going to skip a big chunk here, verses 8 through 18. You can... Um, I'm sorry, 11 through 18, um, simply because of sake of time. And I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to really deal with Sarah and Hagar and Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem below. And uh, so we'll make sure we get, have time to do that. So I'm going to pick up with verse 19. My little children... For whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. So here's my question. And this is very powerful. So he's talking about really justification. He's talking about Christ being formed within. You cannot separate justification without Christ being formed within us. Isn't that powerful? Sometimes we don't want to think about that. You don't want to think, okay, this is a theory. Jesus is out here. The Holy Spirit is about. No, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we need to grasp that powerful uh, truth. So here's my question for you. What is it that forms Christ within us? I think I heard it. It's our faith in Christ. You put your faith in Christ, Christ is formed within you. So what Paul is saying is, by trying to add these Jewish rituals to your faith in Christ, you are taking Christ out. He's not going to be any use to you because you're saying, I'm putting my faith in Christ plus something else. And by the way, Christ will not tolerate that. 
Not because he's selfish, but because it destroys what he can do for us. Our only hope is complete, utter trust in Christ alone. That's the reason I like those great Protestant basic principles. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by Christ alone. We're saved by Scripture. That should have been the first one. Alone. And we're saved to the glory of God alone. And another place Paul talks about justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we all want that glorification, don't we? But these first two come first, and we are going to have, and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our heart that someday we will experience that glorification. So Christ is formed in us by our faith in Him alone. Now, I haven't said a lot about sanctification, but sanctification is by faith alone, too. And I don't really have time, I don't think I'm going to get too far if at all, into chapter 5. But Paul spends his first part talking about justification, and then he ends up speaking in chapter 5 and 6 about sanctification. He does the same thing in the book of Romans. He always talks about justification, and then he talks about sanctification. He talks about obedience. He talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Well, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Yeah, they're works. And works are a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with works. Paul's not against good works. You hear some of our dear ones in other uh, uh, communities of faith, and they talk about how bad works are. And maybe they mean it in the context of justification. If they do, that's correct. Uh, If they're trying to use it to earn salvation. But works is really what Jesus wants. He wants cooperation. Uh, He wants us to do well and to do right But he knows that we cannot accomplish that unless we get the horse in front of the cart, is an old English way of saying it, until you get Christ justification by Christ alone, and then comes the behavior. By the way, before he gives the fruits of the Spirit in chapter 5, he gives a whole list of things that he tells Christians they ought not to be doing. You can read them for yourself. So, So that's all about behavior. Behavior is very important. If people tell you that my behavior doesn't matter as a Christian, they have a false gospel. Your behavior does matter. But good behavior can only come by the living Christ in us because of your faith in Him. All right, so I didn't want to miss that uh, point. Now, I want to pick up with uh, verse 21, if you have your, your Bibles there or in whatever form. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, what does he mean by under the law here in this context? He means it as a system of works. In other words, you want to go back to adding something to Christ and thereby qualifying for your justification with something other than faith in Christ alone. That's what he means here in this context. And I want to push this concept to you. I'll get that a little bit more into that here. But it's very important to look at context. Look at the context because uh, it makes a world of difference. Sometimes Paul can talk about being under the law and he's not talking about a system of works. He's just talking about Sinai. Understand what I mean? So you have to look at the context. 
uh, and how he's applying that particular phrase in that particular moment. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you hear the law? Now, this is his way of saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to take you back to the Testament. He uses the word law here, not to merely refer to Sinai, but he uses it to refer to the entire Old Testament, including the first five books of the Testament, including the story of Genesis. So that's why he's going to jump now into Abraham. So he uses the word law here in a larger sense than he does in other places where he's very specific, like in Romans chapter 7, he's very specific of talking about the Ten Commandments because he actually quotes the Ten Commandments. So again, you have to look at that context and what he means here. So um, then verse 22, for it is written, written where? Genesis. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondswoman and one by a free woman. He has two sons one by a bondswoman and one by a free woman. So what is the understanding of this? We know the story, and we'll keep talking about the story a little bit, but God had come to Abraham and Sarah and promised them a child, and that child would, through that child, would come the seed or the Messiah and all the world would be blessed by that. And Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. He did that before Abraham was ever circumcised, which is an earlier argument. But in the course of time, faith always gets tested your faith will get, if it's not been tested, it will be tested. Because faith can only grow in testing. Some people say, well, why in the world did God put a tree of knowledge of good and evil in a beautiful, perfect garden? It's because he had to in order for them to grow. So their faith had to be tested. Now, I think I mentioned this before. If I didn't, it's worth, if I did, it's worth mentioning again. There is a difference. There is a difference between a temptation and a test. When a teacher gives you a test, does he or she want you to pass the test? Yes. If you pass the test, it looks good on the teacher. Am I right? So the teacher is rooting for your success. They're not rooting for your failure. Right? But the test is to test whether you've been faithful in your studies, whether you have trusted the teacher in his or her teaching. So that's what the test is for. That's what God was doing in the garden. Temptation is different, even though it looks somewhat like the same. Temptation wants you to fall. It wants to affect your ruin. It wants you to draw you into something so that you will mess up. That's what temptation does. So one is a good thing and the other is a sinister thing. So in the Garden of Eden, that was a test 
for them to grow. So your faith is going to be tested. So in the course of time, God is going to test Abraham's faith. Now question and answer, how did he test Abraham and Sarah's faith? Let's see if somebody, speak up loud and clear because I don't. Who said time? Time is right. Time. Time is a tough thing sometimes. I picked this up, uh, somebody shared this with me, and I thought it was really good. And it says, faith in God is faith in His timing. That's hard sometimes. So time. So they're young and vivacious and no problem. We'll have a baby and no babies come. And what does time do to all of us? We get old is right. And certain functions cease to function. Am I right? So Sarah then comes to Abraham one day and she says, look, um, and I'm just imagining. Now this is sanctified imagination, I hope. But you can think about the arguments. The argument was, you know, God wants you to have a son, and he's given you the promise, but obviously God has taken me out of the picture now because I'm too old for this process. So um, we, God must have another plan, and I think the plan is that you would take my bondservant and you could have a baby with her. Now here's the reasoning behind that. Hagar belonged to Sarah, not to Abraham. So if Hagar has a baby, who does the baby belong to? Sarah. So if Hagar has a baby and the baby belongs to Sarah, then Sarah can give that baby to whoever she wants. Am I right? So she is going to give that baby as a gift to Abraham. And presto, we have, Abraham has an heir. And the promise is fulfilled. Uh, of course, there's several things about this that were very, very difficult. And we want to talk about that. First of all, you have to understand that doing this was part of the culture of their day. You're only ten generations from the flood. Only ten. A lot of people know that uh, the population is very small, but a lot of those tribes and groups around Abraham all know about the God of heaven. They're not ignorant. This is not millenniums later where people have never heard the name of God. These people know. Now, they're idol worshipers, but they would argue, just like some Christians do today, that I'm using the idol to worship God. And they knew all about Abraham, and they knew all about his promise. From what we can gather... 
Abraham was a mighty prince. By the way, they call him that, I think, twice. This man is recognized as a very powerful person. Uh, he was in Damascus to start with. In fact, maybe some archaeologists would argue with me, and that's okay. We can have various opinions. But it appears that Eleazar's was of Damascus, and his son, the city is actually named after Eleazar, his, his uh, servant, is actually named after his son. And there are, is evidence that Haran is not way up in the northwest corner of Syria, but it's actually um, east of Damascus, I think. So Laban, Lebanon is named after Laban. This is very early. We're very early and stuff is being formed and names are settling in and Abraham is looked at as a, as a mighty prince. They all knew Abraham, well known. So I want to come back to this culture business. Does culture impact the church? Somebody said, unfortunately, yes, and that's the right answer. We're under pressure. The Ad seven, I, you know, I used to think, oh, well, culture's not going to affect the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have the Ten Commandments. Was I wrong? Culture's powerful. So people look at whatever, and then they think that we should somehow adapt that in the church. They think of Christian biblical reasons to adapt that. And listen, all culture must be tested by Scripture. And, and uh, Scripture is what must guard the church. Culture, this is, by the way, the sands of time are littered with the wrecks of churches that have embraced culture. I'm talking about Christian churches. So this concept goes way back. So they, they've worked this out now. Sarah has, um, uh, has worked this out. Let's look, at, um, let's look at verse 24. At least she's worked it out in her mind. Look at verse 24. Well, let me, let me finish with verse 23. Let's, let's not... I, I skipped verse 23. I didn't mean to do that. Verse 23. But he, the son, who was of the bondswoman, was born according to the flesh... And he of the free woman through the promise. What does it mean that Ishmael was born according to the flesh? And Isaac was born according to the promise. Yes. All right. She's saying that uh, Ishmael was born according to uh, righteousness by works. And Ishmael, uh, Isaac was born according to, to faith. You're close, but let me just put it in a more uh, simple uh, way. Ishmael was born like any two people who get married and decide to have a baby. Who makes the decision? 
the couple, right? Humans make that decision. Who decided that Isaac would be born? Who made that decision? God made that decision. And, Adam, and Abraham and Sarah assumed that God would fill his promise in the normal way. But God doesn't always fulfill his promises in the normal way. Now we talked earlier about time. So why is God testing with time? Why does he wait until Sarah can't have a baby? Because if it had happened before that, all the nations, including maybe Abraham and Sarah, would have shrugged their shoulders and said, the son of the promise is no different than any other child. That makes sense? By the way, the seed that's coming out of Isaac is going to be a super-duper miracle. We talked about the incarnation already, so I'm not going to go back there. This is a super miracle too, but that is off the scale of miracles. We can't even comprehend it, it's so marvelous. So one is born by human choice, the human way, but the other is born because of the promise of God, and here's my next word, alone. That sound familiar? And God has already credited Abraham with believing that promise. But now, it's being, the faith is being tested, and Sarah is having a lot of influence. Now, I say this before, and I say it again. And so all the women should listen up. I mean, he was very fasting, agreeing. Yes. You, you have a lot of influence. Some men should say amen. <laughs> so be careful how you use it. Somebody should have said amen. To... And that's true, isn't it? Of course it's true. That's why they say the man is the head. The woman is the neck. It tells him where to turn. <laughs> yes. Hopefully she's always the heart. All right. Uh, coming, back, coming back now to, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. And let's go back to Scripture here because uh, we, don't, we don't want to, to lose, don't lose my place here where I'm at. Okay. Looking at verse 24. Which things, now this is important, I cannot underline this enough. Which things are symbolic? What does that word symbolic mean? It means exactly what it means. It means that they're symbols. Uh, the word there is allegory. Um, why is Paul helping us to understand it? And I'll tell you why, and I was thinking about this this morning as I was brushing up my mind for this. And I hadn't thought of this before, but, I th I, you know, people really get mixed up with the covenants. Have you noticed that? All those big discussions about covenants? 
And part of the problem is that people will read covenants here and they'll think it's the same thing that the covenants that they're talking about over in Hebrews. And the reason people get mixed up with it is because of what I said earlier. They ignore the context. Paul is saying there are two symbolic covenants. These don't necessarily equate to the others. I want to underline that. Two symbolic covenants. For these are the two covenants, and now he uses another illustration. First of all, he's used two women, and now he uses two cities. Or he uses Mount Sinai. One, these two covenants, one is Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Now, I want to come back to Hagar. Uh, Hagar is a bondservant. Abraham, at the suggestion of Sarah, or the urging of Sarah, says, okay. And he makes a covenant now with Hagar. Now, question and answer. Did God bless the covenant between Abraham and Sarah? Was that God's blessing? Yes. Was this covenant between Abraham and Hagar, was that God's blessing? No. It's not, it was not God's will. This was Abraham and Sarah's doing. This was not God's doing. Now, there's something else that's important here. And that is that when God made the promise to Abraham, that promise was also made to Sarah because she was his wife and they are one. So God doesn't intervene. He lets Abraham do what Abraham chooses. Now, who is ultimately responsible for this covenant? Sarah or Abraham? Abraham is. He takes a suggestion, but he could have said to Sarah, Sarah, my dear wife, we must have faith in God. This was a moment to encourage Sarah's faith instead of enabling her doubts. Sarah, we should have faith in God. Let's just wait. God has not given us permission to do this. But they reasoned it out among themselves, but it's Abraham's decision. He's the final decision on that, and he makes this covenant uh, with Hagar. Now, I want to I look at this for just a moment. God did not recognize Hagar as a substitute wife. How do I know that? Because later, when God shows up to Abraham about 12 years later and reiterates the promise, you're going to have a promised child, Abraham smiles, and I'm being a little facetious, and says, Lord, look, I've got Ishmael. And God would have none of it. God in his mercy still is going to bless Ishmael because he's Abraham's son. 
and he's made some promises to Abraham. But he said, no, Sarah will have the promised child. Wow. I've got some thoughts that I don't want don't to don't lose here. Um, so God did not recognize a substitute wife. He had made no promise to Abraham and Hagar, only to Abraham and Sarah. And God refused to change his covenant. He would not give them the blessed seed based on anything except their faith in his promise. God was certainly not going to include Abraham's man-made covenant with Hagar to achieve the promise by human works and ingenuity. That make sense? Still with me? For God to have done so would have nullified God's promise that was based on Abraham's faith in his power to perform the promise. Now consider this. Consider the fact that man lost Eden over his lack of faith. Now God, through a promise to Abraham, was restoring man through faith in the seed. If God had honored the man-made covenant with Hagar, it would have undone the only possible way that man could be restored once again to Eden. And that's, and that's why this is so big. So man must, Abraham must, put his faith in God. And what's the next word? Alone. What's more, like the law of Sinai, there was nothing wrong with Hagar. There was nothing wrong with Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was fine. There's nothing wrong with Hagar. Like Sarah, she had all the feminine attributes that went with being a woman. She cannot, Hagar cannot be blamed for this escapade. She was a bondswoman. She did what she was told because she had no choice. Like Abraham, who made his own faithless covenant with Hagar to produce a promised seed, so Israel made a faithless covenant with Mount Sinai in order to produce justification. Do you follow me? Do I, should I do that again? Just as Abraham made a faithless covenant with Hagar in order to produce the promised seed, so Israel made a faithless covenant with Sinai in order to produce justification. Let's look at uh, verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and which is in bondage with her children. So in his allegory, and his symbolic, he's saying Hagar is symbolic. She's symbolic 
of Mount Sinai, which now corresponds to the present Jerusalem, which has just crucified the Messiah. It's not the Mount Sinai that was given here in the day of Moses. It's the Mount Sinai that corresponds to the present Jerusalem because that Jerusalem is an apostasy. It did something with something that was very good and wholesome and wonderful and turned it into something that God never intended for it to be turned into. So all the Jewish religious leaders in Paul and the days of Jesus because of their forefathers had made an illicit relationship with Sinai, they all became now in bondage. They became the children of Hagar. You following me? Am I losing anybody? So he's saying that these people, not back, not back at, Mount, at Moses, but these people down in the days of Jesus, they are in bondage just like Hagar was in bondage. And if Hagar is in bondage, her son is also in bondage. Still with me? And if you put your faith in that Hagar, like Abraham put his faith in that Hagar, to produce an heir that would be the seed the Bible says that what they got was not the seed, but, quote, a wild man, end quote. So this illicit relationship between Abraham and Hagar produced a son, all right. It was human ingenuity. It was according to the flesh. It was human decisions. It was a human way of trying to find a way to, to complete God's promise to say, God, look, I've got Ishmael. Look, look. It's like Cain saying, look, Lord, aren't these fruits and vegetables beautiful? Or we say, Lord, look, I've lived the perfect health message. And you should be living the health message. Don't ever take that as something against that. You, I'm just trying to get the right stuff in the right drawer here. You follow me? Or, Lord, I've been, I've been a good person all my life. Like the rich young ruler. All those commandments I've kept from my youth up. See, Lord, I'm here. Human ingenuity. Human choices. But our justification and our salvation depends on us putting our total and complete trust in the power and the love of God alone to fulfill His promises. Okay, I don't see any hands waving, so I'm going to, I want to continue to look at this. So this, this verse 25 is, is, um, is very uh, powerful. Now, I think I've explained that, so let's Let's look at verse 26. But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Whoa. 
So Paul takes everybody, all Christians, all Jews, really reflects the words of Jesus to the Samaritan woman when he said, the day is coming and is already here, I'm paraphrasing, when people will worship God, not in the mountain at Jerusalem and not on Mount Gerizim, but he, they will worship God in spirit and in truth. He's saying to Christians, to everybody, in essence, and I think if this is not the punchline of Galatians, it's close. It would only compete with Galatians 2.20. Jerusalem, I like the King James, I think it says it this way, or maybe the New American Standard. Jerusalem above is our mother. Not this earthly Jerusalem. Because this earthly Jerusalem is in bondage. And everybody that buys into it is in bondage. Everybody that puts their faith in it is in bondage. Jewish, and I say this was the sweetest kindness because there are many precious, precious Jewish people. And I would want them as my, I would want them as my friends. When we talk, we're not here to um, put other people down. I respect their faith. I respect their beliefs. We should always be respectful. But my respect doesn't mean I have to agree. Amen, Amen is right. So we agree, disagree sweetly, but we're Christians. And Judaism today is not much different than the Judaism in the days of Jesus. And everybody that was in it was in bondage because they were trying to find a way to satisfy God by their performance and hope that it would work. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work in paganism either, of course. It didn't work with Abraham uh, at all. Okay, by declaring that Jerusalem above us free is our mother, um, as I said, is the punchline or the theme of Galatians. And this is where the heavenly sanctuary comes in. Because what is in the new Jerusalem? What is in the Jerusalem above? What is the Jerusalem above? It's the seat of God's government. It's the seat of the sanctuary. It's the seat where Jesus is the high priest ministry. This sanctuary in Jerusalem is the authoritative center of the universe and the authoritative center of your salvation and my salvation. It is from Jerusalem above that your sins are forgiven. It is from Jerusalem above that Jesus sends angels to help you in the moments of temptation. It is from the Jerusalem above that the power of the Holy Spirit fell on the early Christian church and is still with us today. It is the Jerusalem above that is the seat of power personally for every one of us, not to speak collectively of the church. Not the earthly Jerusalem. And so, of course, we, we're going to see why this is different. Now, the heavenly Jerusalem, symbolic and allegorically, is free like Sarah. Sarah was a free woman. 
the wife of Abraham. Since the heavenly Jerusalem is free, then her son, Jesus, like Isaac, is free. She is the mother of everyone who lives by faith in God alone. Because it's only in that faith in God alone that you can find freedom. Jesus lived his whole life here by faith in his heavenly Father. When we put our faith in the heavenly Jerusalem's Son, then the heavenly Jerusalem recognizes that faith and immediately embraces us as her children. That's why Paul would say in another place, my citizenship is not in this world. In that place, mercy legally honors faith. It is also the seat of divine power where sinners are not only freed from their guilt, but empowered to live. And this is the part that is so important. It is the seat of power where sinners are freed to live without sin. God does not want us sinning. Now, He's provided an advocate if we do. But there are too many today who think, oh, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, that's wonderful, and it's okay if I go on sinning. It's not okay. Grace, and I, I heard an, an Adventist leader who said, it's all right, I'm just going to be sinning right on up till Jesus comes. That is not biblical. And I don't even have time to get into the close of probation and all of that, except to tell people, look, the same power that justified you is the same power that sanctifies you and is the same power that prepares you for the day of the close of probation. I had a group of young people in another country and somebody had scared them. They were just so scared of the close of probation. It's serious, don't get me wrong. I'm not being flippant. We're living in serious times. And I don't have time to talk about the difference between when you die in Christ and when you come to the close of probation. But there's a similarity. The only difference is that when you die in Christ, you're not subject to any more temptation. But when you come to that close of probation, our Heavenly Father is still on His throne. When you come to the close of probation, the Holy Spirit has not been withdrawn from you. When you come to the close of probation, the grace of Jesus still covers you, not for future sins, but for your past. By the way, when we get to the heaven and live eternally, we will always be living under the righteousness of Jesus because we've lost ours. We, we will always be under the grace of God. The thing that you have during the close of probation and the coming of Jesus 
is that mercy has done everything it can to save everybody it can and everybody has made up their mind and there's not another soul to win and if you are walking with Jesus when you come to that time it's going to be a terrible time of trouble it's going to be difficult I understand that I understand the time of Jacob's trouble but if you are trusting Jesus alone and you have a total surrender, you will be prepared for that time. I didn't say you wouldn't be stressed. I didn't say you wouldn't have difficulty. But you will be prepared and you will go through because no one can take you out of the hands of Jesus once you are utterly and completely surrendered to him. Nothing can take you out of his hand. He will not permit it. That does not mean that we just, just kind of nonchalant. Oh, it doesn't matter if I sin today, it's all right. No, no. You should get up every morning with this aim in mind that I'm not, by the grace of God, by the grace of Christ, by the indwelling Christ today, by setting Jesus always before my face, by the grace of God, I do not intend to sin and break those Ten Commandments today. In fact, I want the love of God in my heart, just like Matthew chapter 5. I want to love everybody around me. That's not indulgent love. It's not approval of sinners. Sinning, I'll put it that way. But I want to love like God loves, because that's the path to perfection. We talked about that already. I didn't mean to quite get into that subject, but I've got to get back to Sarah and to Hagar. But it's an important subject. Find that one. Okay. <clears throat> On our own, we cannot escape the slavery, that slavery, or earn our justification. In Jerusalem below, there's only law. There is no mercy and no grace, and there's no freedom because there's no one to free us from our guilt or from the enslaving power of our sins. There is only condemnation to more slavery and ultimate death. That's why Jerusalem above is free, because it, it frees us from guilt, it frees us from, from uh, sin, and it comes into us and empowers us to live in harmony with the Ten Commandments, the life of Jesus, and the rest of the universe. Listen, the reason God can take us into the kingdom of heaven and the reason the rest of the universe will consent to that is because they want us to be in harmony. I, mean, I'm, I love to listen to a good pianist. My mother blessed her sweetheart for three years. She tried, she gave me piano lessons, hoping against hope. But some people have it and some people don't, and I didn't. So you don't want me playing the piano because there will be some disharmony. But we love piano players who play, and they play in harmony. And that's what the Ten Commandments does. It puts us in harmony with the wonderfulness of the whole universe. And there's freedom in that. We're not going to be out of harm. You're going to be free to do all kinds of things. Oh, what talks about what is... She said, if you love making... You know, there are people that... I was talking to somebody on the way up here, and, and one of them is just a, a great people connector. They're, they're just so outgoing. And there are people like that. They're, they're wonderful. We're glad for them. But 
Ellen White talks about people like that. She says, there's not going to be any limit to the connections you can make, the friends you can make. If you're an intellect and you like to do, discover stuff, there's not going to be any limit. Anything that you can think of, you're never ever going to get bored. You're going to be free. You, you can't have this freedom, however, unless you're in harmony with the unselfish love of the rest of the universe. It's unselfish love that makes life possible. That's the reason Jesus kicks selfishness out of our life. He doesn't compromise with it. He kicks it out. He expels it. So when this harmony is, is produced in our own hearts, and the universe says, please let those people in. We want them as our brothers and sisters. They're just like us. They love God. They love peace. They look after everybody else's rights. Think about having neighbors. What's it going to be like to have neighbors? Just think about it. It's this harmony that produces the freedom. And Jerusalem above, who had the Son Jesus, the seed, who in paid on Calvary's cross and set us free. Now I'm going to give you the very essence of the gospel right here. I should do this every time. I haven't done it yet. But here, here it is. Because it comes into this freedom. Uh, you can read this in John Stott. He's passed away. He's a great Presbyterian um, preacher. You can read it almost identical in Ellen White. And it goes like this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he did that by sacrificing himself to his own justice and set us free. Satan's big lie is that Christianity is slaving and sin is freedom. What a liar! We're only free if we're free from sin. Both its guilt and its practice. Grace Contrary to many thinking. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Grace is, is anti-sin. The reason God pours grace on you is not merely to forgive your sins. I shouldn't say merely, just to forgive your sins. But grace is poured on you in order to overthrow sin. Grace is power. All right, back to um, this, this whole thing here. Um... Sanctification. Let's talk about sanctification for just a moment. Sanctification is justification's child of promise. Now, listen to me. Sanctification is the child of justification. 
you, if you have true justification where your heart has been changed, your sins are forgiven, that will every time without fail, it will produce, not because it's optional, because it's not optional. It's going to. It's like me saying, I've got a ball in my hand, I'm going to throw it, and when I throw it, what's the ball going to do? If you're justified, you are going to have sanctification in your life. Justification always produces sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? That's a big word. A lot of people say, what in the world is that? Let me give you. It's holiness. That's an unpopular word, even in some Adventist circles. But we, the Apostle Peter says, pursue holiness. Well, what is, what is holiness? It's Christ-likeness. It's moral perfection. It's moral love. That's what Christ was. So you pursue Christ-likeness. You pursue God's love. And when you do that, you're going to keep the Ten Commandments. You, you just will. If you really love people, you're not looking for an opportunity to kill them. You're not looking for an opportunity to steal from them. In fact, you want to do just the opposite. You want them to have life. You're not looking for an opportunity for fornication and adultery because you respect the family and you want that family to do well. Now, I know there's a lot of brokenness. and I'm not getting into all of that right now. But you understand where I'm coming from. Okay, in union with Christ, our forgiveness gives birth to Christ-likeness. In contrast, the works of the law cannot give birth to holiness because it cannot change the heart. Do not forget that. The reason this, this Hagar thing is going to fail is because it doesn't change the heart. And I, I need to talk about that for just a moment. Why does a farmer like uh, have fruit trees? Why does he have a fruit tree? Because he wants fruit. And if you have a good fruit tree, then you're going to get... I have a Red Haven peach tree. And uh, it finally came into full bearing last year. It was loaded with Red Haven peaches. Now, I don't know about you, but in our family, we have a torrid love affair with peaches. <laughs> it can only last a little time because those peaches come in, but... And I got to tell you, those are the best peaches I've ever sunk my teeth into. And even my neighbors, my daughter, who's like her daddy, even my boy, you ate more of those peaches? I mean, they're Red Haven peaches, and then there was this Red Haven peach tree. And it was just, it, it was just a little bit of sample, I think, left over from the Garden of Eden. 
Now, what do, what do you think I'm doing about that peach tree? I got a fence around it. Because I don't want the deer tearing it up. I, I'm protecting that peach tree. Now, this year it didn't have very many peaches on it. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it was so loaded last year. But I have anticipation that there is another year. And we will all in our family be looking forward. Dead. Are the peaches ripe yet? God wants holy hearts, unselfish hearts. Because those unselfish hearts bear the most delicious fruit works behavior. You, you get that, right? That's what justification by faith is all about. That's why it gives birth to sanctification. It's because God loves good works. And there's no other way to get it unless we, the trees, have been justified, truly changed our hearts from selfishness to unselfish love. We have the abiding Christ. We have the abiding Christ. We will produce marvelous fruit. And God will say to the rest of the universe, did you see my son? Did you see my daughter? Did you see this one? Did you see that one? Lord, we saw it. We can't believe it. All that mess down there. And look at the fruit these people are bearing. Yeah. It's all because of my son. He lives in their heart. And they're producing wonderful works. The happiest people on earth are the people who live their lives in unselfish love because Jesus lives in their heart. All right, let's look at verse... How are we doing here? Not real good. Oh, no, I'm out of time. This is awful. All right, this is, this is fast forward, and I'll do the best I can. But here we go. Because I've got to make this final parallel. When God gave nature, nature was to be God's what? Second book. But the pagans took nature and made an illicit relationship with it and turned it into paganism. Israel took Sinai which is just fine and made an illicit relationship and turned it into a system of works. Abraham took Hagar, who was a fine woman, and used her to try to get the seed of promise. You see the pattern? And that cost him Ishmael. And here's where I want to finish up. The worst night of Abraham's life was when, Ab when Ishmael was about 14 or 15. They had the weaning for little Isaac. And he's making fun of Isaac 
by the way, he's been taught all the stuff. With a flick of his wrist, he could put an end of the life of little Isaac. And Sarah sees the danger, and she comes to Abraham, and she says, send them away. The Bible says it grieved Abraham, and he refused to do it. After all, that was his boy. Follow me? He raised this boy. That night, God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, by the way, Sarah was wrong before, but this time Sarah is right. Abraham, do what Sarah said. To the credit of Abraham, it must have been the worst night of Abraham's life. I can only imagine the pain. But he gets up in the morning and does what is totally and completely unnatural for a father to do. He gets the boy up and his mother packs their lunch or whatever and sends them away. Every time we make a faithless relationship with something, all of us, it's painful to give it up. But we must crucify the flesh and trust God's promise. God had promised Abraham, I'll take care of Ishmael, but send him away. I don't know what there is in your life or mine, but we're all tempted with it. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, don't make illicit relationships with Hagar. And if you have, plead with God to give you the courage of Abraham to send them away. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your love and for your mercy. And I pray that we will walk with you and that Jesus will fill our hearts every moment of every hour of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.